0: When Jenny and I got married, we were two first-born kids in an epic struggle to establish dominance. How would we arrange the furniture? How would we do groceries? How would we handle bills? How would meals be handled? What does the word clean actually mean? Does it mean just straight and straightened? Does it mean the baseboards have to be washed? Should you be able to see your reflection in the sheen on the floor? What does clean actually mean? So we fought, we yelled, Jenny threw shoes at me. (laughs) I was younger then and could duck quite well. But we resolved our disagreements. One of us deferred to the other or we compromised but not so with our best friends who lived two doors down from us. There, it was the silent treatment. Max, would you ask Andrew to pass the salt, please? I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of tension in the room right now. Maybe you should ask him yourself. Jenny, would you ask Don to pass the mashed potatoes, please? Oh, like... They wouldn't talk. We knew they were fighting because they wouldn't talk to each other directly. Silent treatment. I've since learned over the years that I am conflict avoidant. I don't know about you, but my natural tendency from childhood is to get quiet, to withdraw, and to say nothing. And as it turns out, I'm not alone. 95% of Americans in the workforce struggle to speak up to colleagues when there's a disagreement, or when their feelings are hurt. 95% of people at work will just swallow it and not say anything. Apparently, we love to watch conflict on TV. I I can't believe she said that. Oh, yes, she did. We love watching it on TV, but we hate experiencing it in real life. We run from it. Here's what I want you to know today. Here's today's big idea. True peace will never come by pretending what is wrong is right. Let me say that again. True peace will never come by pretending what is wrong is right. Now, Christians often confuse peacemaking with peacekeeping. So, if you grew up in church and you kind of had to do Bible sword drills and you know everything there is to know about the baby Jesus, you might get confused about these two ideas peacekeeping and peacemaking. Jesus was a peacemaker. Jesus did not ignore tension, he did not ignore differences. Jesus was not afraid to disagree with people. Peacekeepers, on the other hand, they avoid they appease, they defer to others without talking about what they really think or what they really feel, it's a false peace. It's calm and collected on the outside with a southern smile. All the while, there's a smoldering inferno inside. Okay? So, if you believe that it's your Christian duty to keep your mouth shut, when your feelings are hurt or when you disagree about something, I want to suggest to you today that you're mistaken. If you believe that in churches there should never be any conflict ever again, I want to suggest to you that you're mistaken because when two or three are gathered, there is conflict. (laughs) When two or three are gathered, there is conflict. I know this is the case because all you need is a husband and a wife, and that's just two. <laughs> that's just two. So again, true peace will never come by pretending what is wrong is right. Now, we're going to be in the book of Acts today, and the book of Acts is a story of the early church. Miracles, power, the Holy Spirit, sharing, mutual care, everything that you would expect until we get to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we have conflict, complaining, accusations of discrimination and inequity, okay? And so I'm going to read this passage to you, and we're going to chunk it away verse by verse. But as believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll give them this responsibility and then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea and they chose the following, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So, God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So you get all the way to chapter six. That's how long the early church goes before there are rumblings of discontent. Actually, in chapter five, two people are struck dead for lying in the church house. So really, you only had four chapters, (laughs) okay? But in chapter six, it's rumblings of discontent. So the earliest Christians or followers of the way, as they were known, they shared resources, they pooled resources, because they saw themselves as like one big extended family, the family of God. And so, uh, as the new family of God, they, they had this pool, and they would take care of widows. They would take care of grandma. Now, the church is giving away food to widows, and so, because Aramaic Jews are doing the job, they neglect to include the Greek-speaking widows. So again, Aramaic-speaking people are in charge, and they're distributing food on a regular basis, and they miss a number of people who should be getting this food allotment. Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, these are the locals in Jerusalem. They're the born-and-breds, as we would say here in Nicholasville. And then the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews were the transplants, what we would call transplants in Nicholasville, people who moved here from the Midwest. Bless your hearts. <laughs> I'm one of them. It's okay. <laughs> okay? And so there was this disparity going on. Did, do you know that in our community we have a huge Ukrainian population? Did you know that? If I were to ask you where are the neighborhoods and cul-de-sacs where they live, could you point them out easily? Some of you could, some of you couldn't, right? So, like, that's a thing. I don't believe the early church had a meeting and made a decision to exclude the Greek-speaking widows. I believe it was more of a, oh, my goodness, how did we miss that? How did, we, how did that happen? Like, I can't believe we missed these women in the food distribution. And so, the word used for complaining is the same word used in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, for murmuring. These people are angry and upset, and if this situation isn't handled right, you're going to have two churches, the church that does food distribution poorly and the church who does food distribution right, because that's what happens, all right? And so this needs to be handled deftly and appropriately, and that's what happens in verses two and following, okay? So they're taking a cue from Moses, we give them this responsibility, um, there's a passage in Exodus 18 where Moses is told, "Look, you're up from sunset to sundown, or sun up to sundown, here in all these cases and all this stuff. You need to have other people helping you. You're doing too much." And so there's a principle: leaders shouldn't do everything. Leaders shouldn't solve every problem. Amen. Leader, I'm going to say that again, just for me: leaders shouldn't do everything. Leaders shouldn't solve every problem. Not because uh, leaders are better, but but because the people who are, we're reading about in these pages in the early chapters of Acts, these people apprenticed with Jesus who said, if you want to be a leader, then you've got to be a servant of everyone. Um, and so they choose seven men um, who are well-respected and full of the Spirit and mature. And they're not chosen because they've got experience in food distribution. They're, uh, here's what happens a lot of times in churches. Uh, You'll have somebody in a congregation, and I'll pick something. They're vice president uh, up at Toyota in Georgetown. And because they're vice president of whatever in Toyota in Georgetown, you make them in charge of something in leadership in church. And as it turns out, that person is a jerk. They're a jerk at Toyota, and they're a jerk in the church. And everybody in the church is like, why would you put a jerk in charge of everything? That's not real Christian. I mean, there's no fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So just because you have a skill for something... Doesn't necessarily mean you should be in charge of something in the church. Does this make sense? Years and years ago, um, it's probably been 10 years or more, in one of the worship pastor searches, uh, there was a particular uh, young man who candidated here, and everybody who was young was like, hire this person, Max, hire this person. But they had an attitude about themselves that was so larger than life, I wondered how they could get through the door. Like it just, I was like, how do you even fit through the door with a head that big? Like, I could just see, and so I didn't pick that person. I picked somebody else uh, who had character, and as it turns out, they got a job in another church because they were so talented musically, and it was like a slow-moving, burning train wreck, and I thought, I'm so glad that we settled on character over competence. So, in the church, character always trumps competence. In other words, character always matters more than the skills that you bring. So it kind of culminates. Everyone liked this idea, and so they chose Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas. How many Old Testament names can you spot there? <laughs> this is a rhetorical question. You see any Abrahams, any Benjamin, Bar-Simons, any Josephs, Joshuas? No, these are all Greek speaking names. These are Hellenists. These are people who probably are also transplants into the area, okay, just like the widows. So part of the problem going on in Acts chapter 6 is that the leaders in charge of the food distribution aren't aware of all the people in the church just because of the way things work. And so they pick these seven people who have a shot at having a broader set of eyes to really see everybody who needs to be in on the uh, food distribution for widows. What I find great about this is that in the previous verse, we give them this responsibility. Did the apostles tell these people what to do and how to do it? No. You'll find sometimes people freak out at Generations Community Church because they'll step into something and they'll be like, okay, so Pastor Max, tell me what to do. And I'll be like, what do you want to do? What do you mean? I have to come up with these ideas all by myself? And like you know, I need a paper bag and and here's we give we give responsibility, we give authority here, and we hope that God's speaking to you and will help you and will resource you and we'll try to clear the path for you. but again, we try not to tell people how to do things. Now, did the Hellenistic widows in this passage just remain silent and sit on their hands and do the whole? Well, I'm not getting any food, but all my, all my Aramaic friends, they're getting food, but I'm not going to say anything because, you know, it's not my place, and I'm just going to pray that the church leadership sees hell, what a terrible job they're doing and that God will convict them. Is that what they did? Did they sit on their hands? No. They spoke up. They spoke up. They said something. Jesus dealt with disagreements, differences, and tensions head on. In Matthew chapter 16, There's this interchange. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand Jesus for saying such things. Let me read that again. Peter took Jesus aside aside and reprimanded jesus for saying the things that he was saying heaven forbid lord this will never happen to you jesus turned to peter and said get away from me satan you're a dangerous trap to me you're seeing things from merely a human point of view and not from god's here's what jesus didn't do I'm not gonna say anything to Peter. I'm gonna hope that he figures this out. He's really wrong about this. I've been talking about this like every day in my teaching, but I'm just you know, dear Lord, please show Peter. No, what Jesus? Jesus laid a bomb. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus was direct. Now, unlike Jesus, many of us, many of us, engage in dirty fighting tactics. So I want to highlight some dirty fighting tactics that we employ when there's a disagreement or when we need to speak up, okay? By the way, 94% of the way a conversation starts determines how it will end. 94% of the way a conversation starts determines how it will end. Here's some dirty fighting tactics we use. Denying. I don't. I never. I didn't. That wasn't me. Sarcasm. Saying the opposite of what you really think or feel. No. Stay out till one in the morning. It's fine. You're 15. You can make your own decisions. Not true. (laughs) Okay. The silent treatment, like our friends two doors down from us, saying nothing in the face of disagreement or difference. Walking away. Some people will just Stand up, leave the room. They'll physically remove themselves from the conversation. Uh, Shouting. I told you, like, as if a higher volume is going to make the case, but people engage in this, okay? And here's the thing. For those of you that are younger, I want to explain something to you. Moms and dads will sometimes yell at each other. Um, I don't know if you know this, but God yells in the Old Testament. God yells in the New Testament through the voice of Jesus, his son, because love has passion with it. And the, the thing you don't want to see with your parents is apathy, where they don't care about each other at all, and they're like, hmm, whatever, I don't care, hmm, doesn't bother me. But sometimes anger and that passion comes out in inappropriate ways. But I just wanted to put my finger on something for a moment. So shouting is another way. Uh, I came from a household of shouters. Uh, Jenny and I have been known to shout from time to time. Uh, not in a Pentecostal way. The the use of always and never, making universal statements about the other person. You always, you never, right? Uh, passive aggressive. This is when you say the right things with your words, but your face says, later tonight, I will kill you in your sleep. <laughs> okay? Because sometimes the words and the facial expressions don't line up and one of them is true, and that's your facial. So I just got to ask. I wonder what your what is your go-to dirty fighting technique? For me, uh, it's denying. I'm a classic denier, and uh, I am also uh, passive-aggressive on the scale. In other words, I will say what Jenny wants to hear, but my face will be saying, "I will kill you in your sleep," and Jenny will call me on it every single time. Your face is saying something different. Oh, oh. <laughs> Try to hit my face and it doesn't reboot. (laughs) Okay? Here's a couple of questions to ask in light of all of this. Okay? Question number one How did your family of origin handle conflict? How did your family of origin handle conflict? Chances are the way you saw it modeled by your mom or dad or the people that you lived with is how you kind of roll naturally. Okay? How did your family of origin handle conflict? Um, In my family, by the way, here's how it worked: Mom would uh, yell and shout and dad would roll over. Whatever mom said, that's what happened. Boom, right? Uh, So I had that tendency. I've had to fight off that tendency, right? Uh, Second question, are you fighting anywhere right now and how's it going? Are you fighting anywhere right now and how's it going? So, in light of what we see in the book of Acts, in light of the fact that Jesus wasn't afraid to disagree, Jesus wasn't afraid to speak what he was seeing and thinking and feeling in appropriate ways, I want to outline some ways that we can take it home, and then I want to share with you something right out of Peter and Jerry Scazzerzo's, uh tips on fighting cleanly. But before I get to that, first of all, pray. Here's what I don't mean by Pray. Lord God, convict them, show them how wrong they are, bring them back to me, sorrowful. No, I'm not asking you to pray for the other person. When I say pray here, I mean pray for yourself. God, help me to see things clearly. Am I, do, is there something I need to see about me, right? Because a lot of times when there's a disagreement, we so see the other person and how they're wrong and how they need to change, but we often don't see ourselves. And so step one is pray. Ask God to, to give you the ability to see yourself. Have a gut check. Number two, assume the best. This means I'm talking about their intentions. Uh, assume the best. The other person has good intentions. They want to make things work. They want to do better, right? This is why we can't get anywhere in politics in America, by the way. In politics, this is dead. We assume the worst. The other side are evil. Evil. They're just a bunch of evil racists. They're just a bunch of evil baby killers. That's all they are. I mean, and you know, we know we can't negotiate with Hitler, so give it up, right? So that's why, I mean, politics isn't working right now because no one assumes the best about the other person or about the other uh, position. And then number three, talk to each other instead of about each other. Jesus uh, is talking in Matthew 18, and he says, look, when you realize you've got an issue with a brother and you're at the altar, leave your gift. Get up and go and make things right with this person. And what he's saying is, part of what he's saying in that passage is deal direct. We do this in our church family all the time. If somebody's got an issue with Josh and they come to me and they're like, I want to talk to you about Josh and Energens. I'm like, sounds like you need to talk about Josh, not me, right? Like, (laughs) And so I'll send them to the person rather than be uh, a third party uh, or a third spoke in the, in the thing. So I want to talk to spouses for a moment. If you're married, you've got to be very careful about this, um, about compla- and in particular about complaining about your spouse to other people, right? You have to be very judicious about this. Jenny and I had a very good set of friends from college and uh, they got married, and he just, he didn't know. He didn't have any brothers or sisters. Uh, she had five siblings, and he ha- he, it was trial by fire. I mean, if, he, if you could do something wrong as a husband, bless his heart, he did it. And she took every single one of those and went straight to her mom and her three brothers and her two sisters. Now, four years into it, four years into it, Everyone in the family was, Your husband is Satan incarnate. You need to leave him right now. Divorce that man. He's terrible. He had actually gotten his act together and was like making changes, and she had forgiven him about a number of things and was like, But then two years after that, at year seven, they divorced because the pressure from home was so significant because everyone in the family had already been won over on the fact that this guy's terrible. You need to get out, right? So, I say that to say, if you got an issue with your husband or your wife, talk to your husband or wife. But if you're talking to someone else, you got to be judicious about who that is and what settings that takes place. So how do you fight cleanly? First of all, Jenny and I don't always fight cleanly, but we're actually fighting more cleanly than we ever have in our married lives. And I got to tell you, fighting cleanly is so much better. It's so much better. One, because there's, there's not the always and never statements. There's not the shouting. And there's actually some understanding. So this is, again, right out of Peter and Jerry Scazerzo's Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. So here's how to fight cleanly. First of all, state the problem. State the problem. And it starts with, I notice. I notice that you call me after 11 p.m. I noticed that you leave dirty dishes in the sink for more than a day. I noticed that you rarely fill the car up with gas. I noticed that you haven't answered my emails for at least a week. I noticed you pick up your cell phone several times when we're together on a date in a restaurant. The statement doesn't begin with, you know, you're always on your phone when we're at the restaurant. Right? Remember that 94% of the way a conversation starts determines how it ends, okay? Right? So stating the problem is I noticed that. What are you noticing? Okay? And you're articulating a behavior, not an emotion. And then you state why it's important to you. I noticed that you're calling me after 11 p.m. I really value my sleep. I got to get up at 5:30 every morning. Like that's really important to me. And then Uh, When you call me at 1130, I feel obligated to talk to you on the phone, and I feel like you're not respecting my time to rest. And then lastly, state your request with clarity and respect. I'd like you, if you need to call me, I'd like you to call before 9. Now, I'm picking something inane, but you get the idea, right? So, state the problem. State why it's important to you. Uh, Use this sentence, when you... Don't fill the car up with gas and I get in it, drive away and it's on empty. I feel, okay, share what you're feeling and then state your request with clarity and respect. And then one thing that people often don't do is pick a time, two to four weeks in the future, a day when you're going to come back to this, if you've come to an agreement about it and revisit it with how are we doing, how is this working, okay, On on June 3rd at 8 p.m., we're going to come back and talk to this again, talk about this issue again, okay? Let me ask a simple question. Is there any idea from today that you could use in your relationships and how you fight and disagree with people? You know, I want you to say it out loud, but as you're thinking about it, maybe you could implement that this week. You could start using that this week. What one thing would help you the most? Again, here's why we're doing this series. Jesus was asked, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? 613 of them, by the way. And Jesus says, oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law and all the demands of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Emotionally healthy relationships are about being able to give love and receive love in healthy and good ways. And part of that means learning how to fight and disagree with people in ways that doesn't mean World War III and doesn't involve the police or child protective services. (laughs) Are you catching my drift, right? Okay, Here's, here's why this is important. If you avoid conflict and you avoid confrontation, it will go to your stomach It will go to your head. It will go into your liver. It will affect your heart. If you avoid conflict and confrontation, it will affect your body and your health. Why would you want to live that way? Why would you want to have all of that going on in your body, okay? So I want to challenge you today to choose to be a peacemaker, and that means not sitting on your hands when there's something going on in the side, but actually dealing with it, in appropriate and healthy ways. I'm going to invite our musicians to come up. Uh, we're going to sing, and uh, I'm going to pray for us because fighting cleanly is not easy. Is, is anything about today easy? No. This is difficult stuff because it requires changing patterns and whatnot, but that the, I believe God can help you and help me. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and I want you to pray with me. Father, we recognize that at Generations Community Church, there are going to be times when we step on each other's toes. There might be times when Aramaic widows are making out like bandits and Greek widows aren't, and there's a what's going on kind of moment. I ask that in this congregation, we would have the courage to speak up, to deal direct, and to put things out on the table so that we can resolve conflict. Jesus. You did not shy away from naming things, saying things, expressing things, disagreeing. You didn't shy away from tension or difficult conversations. Empower us to break out of our shells and habits and patterns so that we too can be peacemakers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.